Our text this evening is in the Gospel of John, John chapter 5, verses 17 through 30, which we started last time. I'd like to read again this, this passage of John 5, 17 through 30. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. As the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. J.C. Ryle says of these verses in which the Lord here is explaining what it means that he is equal with God. He says these verses begin one of the most deep and solemn passages in the four Gospels. They show us the Lord Jesus asserting his own divine nature, his unity with God the Father, and the high dignity of his office. Nowhere does our Lord dwell so fully on these subjects as in the chapter before us. And nowhere must we confess we find out so thoroughly the weakness of man's understanding. There is much we must all feel that is far beyond our comprehension in our Lord's account of himself. Such knowledge, in short, is too wonderful for us. It is high. We cannot attain unto it. Psalm 139, verse 6. How often men say that they want clear explanations of such doctrines as the Trinity. Yet here we have our Lord handling the subject of his own person. And behold, we cannot follow him. We seem only to touch his meaning with the tip of our fingers, end quote. Last time we began to consider these verses, and the goal was to explain Jesus' statement that his father is working and he is working, as well as the statement of the Jews that in calling Jesus, pardon, in, in, in Jesus calling God his own father, he was making himself equal with God. That's in verses 17 and 18. And I brought to your attention what the Jews of Jesus' day believe regarding God the Father's work after creation. They believe that God continues to carry out the work of providence, 
and in, and, and in doing so doesn't violate uh, his own law regarding the Sabbath because essentially the whole universe is his domain. Any burden of work that God may have as, as God in, in the work of providence, it does not involve him going from one domain to another, but everything that he does is under the one roof of his universe. And that Jesus is saying he is working the same manner as the Father is working is really to claim the same universe, the Father's universe, as his domain. We also considered in general the meaning of Jesus' claim to be equal with God. No mere creature can be equal with God in any way. To be equal with God in power, glory, knowledge, wisdom is to be God. In sum, to be equal with God means that Jesus is identical to the Father in essence. In other words, Jesus is not God-like. He's not another God next to the Father, but he is as to his nature and substance, the same God. The Father, the Son, referred to by John in chapter 1 as the Word, that is the divine person of, of Jesus who took on human flesh, and the Holy Spirit are one spirit, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And this matches with the fact that the Bible, and I might add even logic, I believe, dictates that there can be only one God, there can be only one supreme being who has life in himself. The aseity or the self-existence of God is one of the attributes that Jesus highlights in that amazing statement of verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And I explain that for the Father to have life in himself means he is uncreated, he is eternal. And Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, also has life in himself. This is something that can only be true of the one true God, and yet at the same time the Father, notice, grants the Son to have life in himself. So within the life of the one God, there are two persons. Well, there's also a third person, but in view here are two persons, the Father giving life to the Son, but only because they are the same essence, the same in essence, can it also be said that, that the Son has life in himself. If the Son was a created being from the Father, then the Son wouldn't have life in himself. He would only have life from the Father. For Jesus to have life in himself means that within the one Godhead, from eternity, belonging to the very nature of God himself, the Father begets the Son, so that these two persons have always coexisted as part of the life of the one divine God. And we could also add, though this is not within the purview of our text, that within the life of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And since the Holy Spirit is of the same essence as the Father and Son, of course, he also has life in himself. And the key is to understand that we are talking about the nature of the one true and living God. It is the nature of this one God to exist eternally in three persons who relate to one another in very defined ways. And last time it was mentioned <clears throat> that verse 27 of our text also supports the truth that Jesus is equal to God in essence. What's being highlighted is the significance of Jesus' claim to be the Son of Man. Notice verse 27, and he that is the Father has given him, that is Jesus, as the Son, 
authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. It's in Daniel chapter 7 that we find a description of the significance of the Son of Man. For Daniel, the Son of Man was coming, and Daniel is writing as a prophet about what God is going to do through him one day. And I'd have you, have you turn in your Bibles for a moment to Daniel chapter 7. Um, Daniel chapter 7, beginning at verse 9. I want to read through verse 14. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the Ancient of Days is God, and uh, verse 13 predicts, one like a son of man, because he's not simply a man. You see, in the Old Testament, the expression the son of man is used fairly often. It refers to mankind. In Psalm 8, the question is asked, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Ezekiel often refers to himself as a son of man. And so sometimes, um, in fact, most of the time in the Old Testament, that expression son of man refers to a human being. But then we have the son of man in Daniel. When we think of the person of Jesus, John has told us that he is the word who was with God and who is God. He is the creator, he is the son of God, but he is also the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. So that Jesus as the son, as the word, is both God and man. This is the background that we think about when we read in the Gospels, Jesus referring to himself as the son of man. What does he mean? Is he highlighting the fact that he is a man, that he's one of us? Well, yes, most certainly. But is that all? Well, surely he is also setting himself forth as the son of man, this one predicted by Daniel. And it's appropriate that Daniel, son of man, would be said to be like a son of man, for he's certainly more than a mere man. What is described as someone who was given by God rule over an eternal kingdom that takes in the entire world. The son of man in Daniel's prophecy is given dominion and glory and a kingdom he served by mankind in a way that's only appropriate for God. And thus Daniel foretells a being who is both human and divine. He foretold the coming of the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, who though existing eternally as the Son of God, became a man, being born of David's line, and who also after his death and resurrection has ascended to the Father's right hand, and now rules on his behalf, and will one day judge all mankind. 
And what's important for our purposes this evening is that Jesus is claiming to be this divine son of man. Certainly the Jews would have or could have tried to latch onto Jesus' claim to be the son of man only in the sense of Psalm 8. But Jesus says of himself as the son of man that the father has given him authority to execute judgment. That's clearly a claim to be the divine son of man of Daniel. And as one equal to God and yet a man, Jesus fits Daniel's prediction. So point out that closely related to this claim of Jesus to be equal in essence to the Father, to essentially be God, is also the claim of Jesus to be equal in honor, or we might say equally worthy of honor. Since Jesus is Daniel's son of man, he is worthy of receiving the glory that belongs to God alone. Remember, God will not share his glory with another, and yet he's willing to share his glory with the Son. And both of these things can be true only if Jesus, as the Son, is God. As the Son of Man, Jesus has been given the dominion and authority that is only God's to give and to have. Jesus is worthy of being served by mankind. And here, what, in John's Gospel, what is being highlighted is the glory of Jesus the incarnate Son of God, and being given the authority and privilege to judge mankind. Notice verse 22, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And we might ask, well, why? Verse 23 answers that for us, that all, uh, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So think of it, honoring the Son just as they honor the Father. Well, how is the Father honored? He's worshipped as the one true God, as the creator, as the God of providence who sovereignly upholds and guides his creation, the God who alone is worthy of worship. And the, the Son incarnate, Jesus Christ, has been exalted to a position of authority so that he will be honored in a way that only God can and should be honored. Jesus is worthy of worship. To worship both the Father and the Son is perfectly appropriate because both are one in essence, both being by nature the one divine God. So how is Jesus equal to the Father in essence and therefore equal to the Father in majesty and glory and therefore equal to the Father in terms of inherent worth to rightly receive divine worship? Jesus, in verse 19, begins his, the defense of his claim to be God's son and therefore equal with God. He's really elaborating on what he meant when he said, My father is working until now, and I am working. Verse 17, Jesus tells us about his work in these verses here, and, and it makes it clear that his work is conducted in close coordination with the father. Jesus is not saying is that his father works and he works and they are each independently doing their own thing. Now, I'm certain that everyone here could talk about how you have work to do each day and you might also mention that God also works in the work of providence, but we would not be saying about our work what Jesus here is saying about his. In other words, Jesus is not using the activity of God the Father as an analogy to his work. He's equating God's work and his work. So 
What does he say in support of this? Well, first, Jesus, the Son of God, is equal to God in his will. Um, His will and God's will are one. Verse 19, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Remember how I spoke last time of how there is both unity and distinction within the divinity of our triune God. And both of these ideas are here. The distinction is found in that the Son obeys the Father. He doesn't do anything on his own initiative. And the Father in this sense is first and he directs the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the Son sees what the Father is doing and follows the Father's lead. And yet there is unity because Jesus the Son is guided by the will of the Father and ends up doing the work that the Father is doing. If all of us were considering the the statement that, that Jesus does nothing of his own accord, if all we were considering was that statement, that that Jesus does nothing of his own accord, we might think that he's just this mindless robot serving the Father. But according to verse 21, Jesus does have his own will. It says, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 30 explains further, I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so what Jesus is describing is the perfect unity of his will and his Father's will. Yes, Jesus does have his own will, but he never seeks his own will in a way that would contradict or go against the will of the Father. There's no suppression or oppression of the Son's will that is involved. Rather, Jesus is describing a perfect identity of his will and his Father's will. And yet in a way, or I should say not in a way, that destroys the distinction between Father and Son, but in a way consistent with the Father and Son being equal in essence. So as two distinct persons, the Father and the Son, they both will things to be done, but as one God, there can be in the end only one will in the Godhead. When the Father and Son exercise their will, the one will of God is carried forward. And second, Jesus as the Son is equal to the Father because Jesus' work is divine work. This follows from the Father's and Son's wills being identical. The will is about making decisions about what you are going to do. And if the Father and Son share the same will, then it makes sense that they are going to be involved in the same work. And as we consider the work of the Father and the Son, again, there's unity and distinction. Um, The distinction comes in that the Father and the Son have different functions. They have different roles in the Godhead as they they carry out the will of God. For example, we are told in verse, um, let me see which verse this is. I don't think I have this written down correctly, but we're told here in our text, verse 22, that the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Notice that. Jesus goes on to explain that this is for the purpose that all may honor the Son, giving him... Uh, worship as God just as they honor the Father. But notice the Father doesn't judge, the Son judges. And though there is a division of labor, then so to speak, among the persons of the Godhead, and division of labor that corresponds to the distinction of their persons, 
that there's also a strong emphasis here in the text on how what Jesus is doing is never independent of the Father. All that they do together is divine work. Verse 19, Jesus, he says, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So there's distinction in how the Son follows the lead of the Father, and yet the Son does what the Father does. Can any of us rightly say about our work, what Jesus here says about his work? Do any of us do what the Father does? It's important to recognize the absoluteness in what Jesus here is saying about himself and his work in verses 19 and 20. Jesus is really describing something that none of us can claim for ourselves. Now, I can imagine someone saying that they do the work of the Father when they say evangelize the lost and sinners are brought to faith. They might try to speak that way and say, yes, I'm doing the work of God. Or they might add, well, God is loving and he does loving things. And I also do loving things and thus I do what the Father does. But this is not what Jesus here is talking about. Notice that Jesus can do nothing of his own accord. There's no possibility, there's no ability on Jesus' part of doing anything independently of the Father. Which means, first of all, that everything he does is in line with the Father's will, but there's more than that here. Because before the fall, Adam and Eve could claim to do nothing of their own accord. But in the end, they were able to do things of their own accord, for they had their own wills that were capable of asserting independence from God, as we know. That's what happened in the fall. What Jesus claims is the same thing as saying, or, or should ask this as a question, is what Jesus claims here the same thing as saying that God's will sovereignly takes in everything we do, or that apart from God we can do nothing because we are creatures dependent upon God for our next breath? No, Jesus is saying something much more profound than this. For Jesus, there is not even the possibility of contradicting the Father's will, not even the possibility of doing something of his own will, because his will is identical to the Father's will. And notice the additional proof here that this is not simply Jesus claiming to have a perfect will. Uh, that would mean that he only wills those things that are pleasing to God. I mean, again, Adam and Eve, before the fall, they could make that claim. There's more going on than that with the Son. For in verse 19, he explains that he does only, only what he sees the Father doing. This seeing, what does this seeing mean? What does Jesus mean by seeing what the Father is doing? Well, it's a metaphor that, that says that Jesus sees with his mind's eye everything that the Father is doing. Jesus is essentially saying that he knows the mind of God. He knows what work God the Father is doing, all of it at every moment in time. And God is active in the carrying out of the will of his decree, and Jesus knows all about that decree. And he makes this amazing claim that everything he does is in line with what he sees, what he knows, what he understands the Father is doing. Everything the Son does is with the knowledge of the plan and will of God as it pertains to God's governance of the universe. And significantly, Jesus says that he only does what he sees the Father doing. There's nothing that he does that is not connected with the work of the Father. It's safe to say that 
all that the Father does is divine work. And Jesus is saying he knows all that the Father is doing, all of it, and that his work perfectly lines up with that work of the Father. There is no work that he does that falls outside of that divine work. And furthermore, there's no work that the Father is doing in which the Son is not involved. Notice the second part of verse 19, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now we might be able to do some things that are analogous to what God does, but Jesus, as the Son, is claiming to do the work that the Father does, and that this work includes whatever he does, not just some aspects of what the Father does, whatever the Father does, means that there's nothing that the Father does that doesn't include Jesus. The big picture is that Jesus wants to make clear that he has, as the Son, has a perfect working relationship with the Father. When Jesus claimed to be equal with God, theoretically, he could have been saying that he is God like the Father, and therefore he can kind of just do whatever he wants as though he's another God next to the Father. But everything that Jesus has said is geared towards saying that in claiming to be equal with God, he's not trying to usurp the Father or somehow assert himself as in competition with the Father. No, the Son and the Father work together in perfect harmony. Verse 20 explains how it is that the Son comes to know what the Father is doing and how it is that he comes to involve himself in the Father's work. And it's not that Jesus is wrongly inserting himself where he doesn't belong. No, verse 20 explains how it is that the Son does whatever the Father does. It says, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. The Father wants the Son to do what he is doing. He wants the, father, uh, the, the Son to, to see all that he is doing. And uh, what Jesus has been doing is great work as the Messiah, including the miraculous signs of turning water into wine and healing the sick. And notice how Jesus refers <coughs> to doing even greater works than these. The lesser works are, seems from the context, these miracles that he's been doing, including the healing of the official's son and the work that he had just accomplished of healing this paralyzed man who was lying by the pool of Bethesda. But notice that even these works, even these so-called lesser works, are still divine works that we could never do. And what Jesus gives us in verses 21 through 29 is a description of these greater works that Jesus does and will do in line with the will and activity of the Father. There are two greater works particularly here that are highlighted, the work of resurrection and the work of judgment. Jesus begins with describing his work of resurrection Verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. There are two resurrections with which the Son of God is involved, and Jesus refers to both of these. There is the resurrection first of the dead sinner to eternal life. That takes place through the work of regeneration and the granting of repentance and faith. And there's also the resurrection of dead bodies that Jesus will perform at his second coming on the day of judgment. And with both of these resurrections, it's correct to say that the Father raises the dead and that Jesus raises the dead. And verse 25 is referring to spiritual resurrection. Notice 
The Lord says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And the way we know that this is spiritual resurrection is the detail there, that this is now here. He says this is a present reality that there are dead people who hear the voice of the Son of God, who hear the voice of Jesus, and who live. And then later in verse 28, the present tense element is missing, and Jesus there is describing the resurrection of the dead from their tomb, something that is future. He says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. When all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So this work of judgment, this is the second greater work that Jesus also has in mind in these verses. Verse 22, the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son. Verse 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Notice what this work of judgment involves, that this is indeed divine work. This means Jesus has the ability to know the life stories of every single human being, of whether they have done good or evil. And this is not saying that we will be judged by our works, but we will be judged according to our works, which means that our works will be the basis by which our faith or lack of faith is known. Judgment Day, our works will be the evidence of where we stand in relation to God, in relation to Jesus. For those who have done good works out of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, for them there will be life, but for those who have done evil, there will be judgment. You might say, well, wait a minute, haven't all of us done evil? What hope do we have of not being a part of that resurrection of judgment? Well, the question is what we have done with our sins. Have you believed on the name of Jesus as the Savior sent by God to save you from sin? Has your sin, a record, has your sin record been erased by means of repenting of your sins and putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you stand before Christ with a record of all of the evil things you have ever done? Or will you stand before Christ with that perfect record of Christ that is yours because you have received Christ by faith? Take note of the fact that the Son has to be divine to know the hearts of all men and to determine their destinies for all eternity. Only God has the power to raise the dead. Only the Son of God, if he is in fact God, can call the dead to life. Now, I would also point out verse 24 is also relevant to this assertion that, that Jesus the Son is equal in works and will to the Father says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And I also think very relevant, um, very similar in idea is uh, verse 23, the second part, where it says, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Verse 24, and, and, and there at the end of verse 23 basic idea really is that to listen to Jesus, to believe in Jesus, is the same thing as listening to God and believing in God. Already John's gospel has clearly set forth the need to believe in Jesus for salvation in order to have eternal life. In chapter 1, we are told that in the word was life and the life was the light of men. 
John the Baptist bore witness to this light, the Lord Jesus, the word, that all people might believe in him. Those who believed in his name, we are told, he gave the right to become children of God. John the Baptist testified that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus told Nicodemus that the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In John 3, verse 35, we read, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that he has living water that springs up to eternal life. We are told that many of the Samaritans believed in Jesus, knowing him to be the Savior of the world. And so in verse 24, Jesus is setting forth what is necessary for a person to have eternal life. And he says that that person must believe his word and must believe him who sent him, that is God the Father, to believe God, to believe in, in, in what God says, to have faith in God and to believe the Son, to have faith in, in the Son is really the same thing. And really it's because they both say the same thing. They say the same thing about Jesus and about how to be saved. The Father and the Son, they know the will of God to save sinners and both are involved in this marvelous, glorious work of saving sinners. The Father is the one who sent Jesus to be our Savior. He calls people to believe in Jesus as the sacrifice God has provided for sin. And the Son is doing the very same work because he is the one who is sent by the Father, and he's, he has come, and he's calling people to believe in himself. And in the end, there's no question then that Jesus is equal with God. He is equal to the Father in essence. He's equal to the Father in his will and works and in honor. To hear Jesus' words and to reject him is to reject God, while to hear Jesus and accept him is to accept God. And that is why it is absolutely impossible to claim to trust in God and to be saved by God without trusting in Jesus. I'd remind you of, the, of what John in his gospel in the, toward the very end, um, the very end of his gospel, what, is he said, what does he say? Remember, as the purpose of writing his gospel, he says in John chapter 20, verse 30, Verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, what an amazing thing that you have sent your Son, your divine, eternal Son, to be our Savior from sin. And we pray, Father, that we would recognize uh, the significance of of who he is, and that we would put our faith and trust in him, him alone for eternal life, knowing that in doing so we are doing what you would have us to do, for he is your son. Um, Father, it's, we acknowledge a mystery as we try to understand who you are. It's difficult for us, but Father, this just confirms to us all the more that you are indeed the one true and living God, a God who is so far beyond us in transcendence and magnificence that we cannot fully wrap our minds around who you are. But Father, we thank you for this revelation that you have given 
And uh, we pray, Father, that we would take these things to heart, that we would grow in our understanding of them, and that most of all, the result would be that we would put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.